This is Marketing Smarts, a podcast committed to cutting through all the confusing marketing BS so you can actually understand how to take action and change your business today. Welcome to Marketing Smarts. I am Ann Candido. And I am April Martini. And today we are going to talk about why it's important, now more so than ever, to focus on your brand in order to build or maintain a successful business. As everyone knows by now, brand is what brought Ann and me together. So of course, we have a ton of personal passion for this topic, and it's really the lifeblood of our company. And being completely candid, we've unfortunately seen too many companies shortchange their brand given current business climates in an effort to do things fill in the blank faster, cheaper, check the box, and get something done. Yeah, so many excuses exist out there like, you'll worry about brand later, brand is only for products, it is what big businesses do, it costs too much money, there's no immediate ROI, and that one's actually my favorite. And the list goes on and on. To be clear, this is not the way to go about building or maintaining a successful business. And we will always and very passionately argue that this is what will over time lead to less than stellar business results, stunted growth, and honestly, in the worst cases, the demise of your business. Does it sound scary? It is, but it really doesn't have to be. And the good news is we're here to help you through. We have the podcast. That's one of our main goals. And if you need us, you know where to find us. Reach out anytime. Before we jump into this episode, we thought it was worth reminding all of you what makes up a brand. And as you've heard us say, there are three foundational questions which you must be able to answer in order to be a brand. Those are, who am I? How am I different? And why would you want me? This establishes the foundation for your brand. And then from that, you can build all your branding elements, all your visual elements like your logo, your colors, and your um, and your styles, as well as all your verbal elements, like your brand story and all of your messaging. All of this comes together in order to be able to define your brand. And to be clear, brand is not the same thing as marketing. And a lot of people switch this up. Marketing is actually the way in which you execute against your brand. Those are your tactics. So you see why it's so critically foundationally important that you actually have your brand because it is your reason for existing. Yeah. So again, two very different things. Make sure today as we talk, you're thinking through the lens of brand and not necessarily marketing directly. So let's jump in to the top four reasons you must focus on your brand to build a successful and sustaining business. Number one, if you don't define your brand, no one will care. You guys, 90% of decisions are emotionally driven. If you do not have a brand, you do not have an emotional connection, which means you are missing out on 90% of decisions being made. We like to say, and I'm going to steal Ian's thunder a little bit here, <laughs> that apathy honestly equals death. Does it sound a little dark? Okay, fine. Yes, maybe a little bit. But it really is the truth because what happens is if you don't have a defined brand, people are just going to pass you by. They're not going to give you a second thought or a second glance. They're not going to try to do the homework on their own to dig apart, you know, what do we think they stand for? I mean, there's so many options out there today and so much noise. They're just going to move along. And what that means for you is then you're going to be stuck disproportionately spending your dollars, really throwing them out the window 
on tactical things like why am I showing up 60th and on the ninth page of Google search and why am I not elevating through the ranks? And so you're going to throw money to try to get that to happen where really the best and most sustaining way to do it is through building your brand. Another thing that happens lack of consistent messaging. So there will be stuff all over the place. Your channels won't connect. You know, you won't have a filter by which to choose how to say things. Back to Anne's point about the toolkit, making sure that everything holds together and you'll end up standing for nothing at all. So really, it is worse to not spend any time on your brand, to not spend the time to define it, And to just put things up there that really aren't helping anyone because it causes an identity crisis for you, which translates to the customers you're not going to get, to the marketplace, and at the end of the day leaves you holding the bag trying to sell something that really has no meaning to anyone. Yeah, I think those are all really, really good points because a lot of times we get people who uh, come to us and they say, hey... I need this tactic. I need this website. I need this social post on for one of my social channels. Or, you know, the list goes on and on. Our first question is always, what do you want us to say? Like, (laughs) what do you want to say? And a lot of times people kind of scratch their heads or like, well, I don't know. That is a brand identity crisis. If you can't answer the question about what you're going to say and what you're going to say in a way that's more um, emotionally led than just what you do, then you are not thinking about brand in mind. And then what you're going to put out there is not going to resonate with consumers in a compelling enough way to drive that closure that you seek. This is why a lot of people fail in their tactics. This is why a lot of people aren't getting the conversion on their websites. A lot of people are not getting the engagement on social channels, not getting that conversion from Google ads. It's because the time that they spend actually trying to figure out what to say there is, is wasted time because it's not coming from a brand lens. Yes, exactly. And, you know, Anne mentioned her favorite one being that there's no immediate ROI. We always argue that there is immensely more ROI over time if you are patient with it. But I think the counterpoint here is to call out the biggest brands in the world. And I'm not just saying biggest brand like you identify their logo. It is financially proven that they are the biggest brands in the world. So here we have Amazon, Google, Apple, Microsoft, Samsung. Samsung, ranging in price of $220 billion to $94 billion. And I know we always get the pushback of like, well, they're huge brands. They have all the money in the world to spend on this. And, you know, woe is me. I don't have this. But all these brands started from somewhere. And the somewhere was to build a brand experience that then has translated and grown exponentially over the years to the point where if any of you listening can't picture, fill in the blank, the logo, the products, the whatever associated with these brands, you must have been living in a hole for the past however many years. They've built not only financially and what they sell, but also from a brand perspective, which is the most important. Yes. I mean, I think it's a really good point because Apple like doesn't just sell computers and phones. Right. I mean, what they're selling is something that goes way beyond what the actual basic product function is, they're selling a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Like having a Mac computer and an Apple you know, iPhone is saying something about your personal brand and the way that you're trying to showcase what you are putting out there to the world and what you want people to think about you. They get that. That's what they built around. That's why they have the cool factor. That's why other people haven't been able to embrace the cool factor. 
if you think you can't do that, just go back to really like thinking about the fact that these things are just computers and phones and search engines. I mean, they're in their very basic, a commodity that somebody has built a brand experience around that's allowed them to scale. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we've talked about Amazon before and on previous episodes and the fact that they sell, you know, commoditized products and they're hosting tons of different brands on their platforms and and those types of things. But their brand has always been very solidly intact. I mean, think about how often you see their trucks with like the Amazon uh, arrow and the smile format or when you walk into your building and you see their boxes. I mean, that brand has permeated the world to the point where you can't get away from it, which is why Ann loves it so much. Um, but also, you know, from nothing to everything and and so many things in our lives and across channels and all of those types of things. So we know we're referencing huge brands with these comments. Um, but ultimately, the, the point is here is that they started somewhere and that somewhere was from a brand foundation. On to number two, brand automatically makes you more customer focused. And I'm going to hand this one to Anne, but just notice there that I didn't say business focused. Right. And the way that we always try to tease this one out with our clients is we ask them, what do you sell? And a lot of times, again, we get a kind of like, you know, scratching the head and they'll respond very simply. Well, we sell insert, you know, whatever product or insert whatever service. And we, you know, politely come back and say, okay, that's what you do. Mm -hmm. What do you actually sell? Because as April had mentioned, these big brands are selling something other than what they do. And if you can tap into that with your brand, you have this potential for exponential scale and growth. And with that, you build tangible mass for your brand in which you can actually then demand higher price points. You get more customers. Your marketing has stronger performance and ROI. And yes, like I said, you can generate more scale. So the power of brand here is what is enabling all of this growth. And that is something that a lot of people don't see because when they see the big brands and me and April came from them and we worked on them, and she made a very good point is that they had to start somewhere and they started very small in the minds of people. And then they actually then um, they were actually created and evolved over a long period of time in order to be able to become what you see now, which is these franchises. But it's because they were consumer centric. It was because they understood that and they were trying to create that experience for their consumer, as opposed to being on the business side where a lot of businesses will come out and push and say, you need to buy me because of this. I'm better. I'm faster. I'm stronger. I'm, you know, I'm, I, I have um, more experience. Well, the problem is, is that right now, that's basically table stakes. Like, that's just the price of entry. Being the best is just actually the price of entry. People expect you to have a good product. They expect you to have good service. They want something more. So what you're selling, even though you might be putting a price tag on a thing, you should be selling that emotional benefit, which is the way that people feel as a result of them using your product or service. Yeah. And I think this is, you know, where you get to brand ambassadors, right? Because then you start to build the community of people that are loyal to your brand to the point where they're almost blocking out other options and then subsequently telling people about you. And so 
the choice is already made in their minds and, and consistently they come back to you. And that's really the place you want to be where you're so customer centric that there are people that will speak on your behalf. And that becomes really the holy grail because then you don't have to do all of the marketing efforts. And it's more authentic when it's coming from people that really have no stake in the game or no claim to what you're selling other than they love it so much that they're willing to tell others. Yeah. And that's the word of mouth that everybody craves, but you can't really design for, you, you can't really brief for. You you get the word of mouth because you've created something that's so irresistible to consumers based on the way that they feel about what you guys do that they're wanting to talk about it. And you've given them something tangible in which to talk about. So that is really, really critically important. And you're going to hear us reiterating that over and over. And if you haven't caught on yet, we're giving you big brand secrets. So I hope you guys are listening (laughs) because if you're wanting to know how these big brands do this, this is how they do it. And I think it's really important to say, too, that anybody can be a big brand. Mm -hmm. I mean, and and your scale can vary. Not everybody's going to be a Nike. So, you know, we get that. But you can be more than what you are if you can embrace these principles that we're telling you. Yes, exactly, which is really good segue into the next one, which brings us to point number three, which Anne has set herself up nicely for. Brand gives you a competitive advantage. Yes, and there's a couple reasons why this is the case. So one, as we've talked about, one of the core questions you have to answer is, how am I different? This is a differentiator. When you start putting all those pieces together, like we said, the visual and the verbal elements, you start creating an identity that becomes yours. And then the relationship you create with your customer as a result of the outreach that you're doing and the connections you make become yours. And that creates a solidification of a relationship. And relationships are super important because people want to care about the brands that they're actually buying. They want to care about the services that they're getting. Remember what we said, 90% of decisions are emotional. So you have to really tap into that. Now, what that also does is it gives you a solid foundation to compete in the marketplace, right? So not only are you differentiating from your competition, but when your competition is coming out with new innovation, as they're coming out with, um, you know, if they reduce their costs, if they're doing promos, if they're doing new claims against you, believe me, this happens a ton in big brand world. What you can do is you can filter that back through your brand and you can say, how much of an impact is this going to have on my customer, on my consumer? And you can filter that through based on the relationship you have with them. Is this claim going to really sway what my consumer thinks about me? If it does, I need to do something about it. If it doesn't, I can leave it alone. So it provides a really good strategic way in order to filter threats. So you're not sitting there where every time your competition does something and panic. And actually, that still happens in the big brand world. I won't lie. Um, So, you know, because it becomes all of a sudden like that initial reaction of like, what is my customer going to think? What is my consumer going to think? But after you can analyze that and put it all in perspective, you can make a really sound decision about how you're going to react. And it's a proactive reaction, if I can say that, um, as opposed to just like trying to chase your tail or try to chase their tail instead, which then becomes more of them leading you or the tail wagging the dog or whatever analogy you want to make versus you leading the industry, you leading your category, and you setting the stage for how this category is going to operate. Yeah. And I would say, you know, back to the point about the customer experience, then when this happens, you know, when you start chasing your competition and doing the the wrong things, it doesn't matter how strong a base or 
you know, set of advocates you've built from your consumers. The problem with having a strong relationship is they sniff out something that's inauthentic or doesn't fit with the brand fairly automatically. So not only are you doing a disservice to the business and not being a leader in the space, the repercussions for your clients and your customers is that they're kind of throwing up their hands and saying, wait a minute, why are they acting this way? Mm -hmm. And then starting to question like, oh, no, is this a threat or, you know, has a new trend come into the marketplace that I'm not aware of or is X business in trouble? I mean, it just causes them a lot of, you know, where they had comfort before. Now they're left thinking, oh, am I right to put my affiliation with this brand? Yeah, it creates a tremendous amount of doubt and then starts undermining your your brand equity. Mm-hmm. And that is something you don't want to do. We're not saying that you never flex, you never respond. Mm-hmm. I mean, because there is going to be cases where you're going to have to flex and you are going to have to respond because there's outside forces at play to like retailers and those sorts of things that could put some pressure on you. But at least you have the foundation of how of knowing how your customer is going to respond. And what's going to happen, because I think you make a really good point, April, that if you respond to competition in a very knee-jerk re- reaction, what impact that's going to have back on your customer? And you know you have to be very careful about that trust you've created because once you start eroding the trust, it is super hard to build back up. So you need to be very, uh, very mindful of that and work with a lot of integrity because also what you're going to potentially ruin is your ability to scale. So when you're able to build that brand, you build the foundation from which everything else grows. And if you start really like splintering it off and really undermining different pieces of it, you lose your ability in that foundation to be able to grow more from it. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes very fragmented. Yeah, I mean, and I would just, you know, put a fine point on that and say you can walk any grocery store today and see what happens when everybody starts to chase everybody else. I mean, yeah. there's how many brands of smoothies where there used to be like two or three yogurt brands. There's probably 20. Um, and and then on top of that, you have different flavors and different ingredients and all seltzer these different waters, things. Yes, yeah, seltzer oh, waters, seltzer alcoholic beverages. I mean, there are so we could just talk all day about the categories. Um, but I think think the point is here is the brands that know who they are know, to Anne's point, when they should entertain and jump into these types of situations versus saying, no, 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 I'm going to let that one play out and let's just see what happens with those guys. We're not going to waste our time on that. So case in point, I just heard today that um, Coke is now launching three SKUs of Coke coffee. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So it's like, a, I think it was a caramel one and I, it had like even flavors. I was like, I wonder if that is a good idea or not. So it could be interesting <laughs> to kind of see if that proliferation of their brand, because obviously Coke has a very strong foundation for being able to proliferate in the beverage market and have done so very successfully, if that one actually rides or not, or if it becomes like the old Coke, new Coke kind of like the bollicle. So yeah, I'm not so sure I'd put my, my bet on that one, but we'll see what <laughs> happens. <laughs> All right. On to our fourth point. You escape the threat of becoming a commodity and potentially inched out of the marketplace as it evolves. So we have set the conversation very specifically for this one based on what we were just talking about. Um, But the point here is that if you don't build your brand, you are automatically setting yourself up 
for an uphill battle and doing yourself a really big disservice. So you're then competing on the least common denominators. And in the cutthroat world we're in right now and, you know, how so many businesses are, are being weeded out or um, acquired or whatever the case might be, what you really end up competing on are things like price or can I do it faster or, you know, can I do it, you know, with less of an overall, like, intensity than others? I mean, it really kind of runs the gamut. But the point here is that you just kind of go into this hole that co- becomes really hard to get out of. I mean, honestly, it makes me feel like my soul is being sucked out of my body when I see this <laughs> happening to a company. That sounds, you know, like a very strong statement. But it's true because how many times have you seen something new and exciting coming to the marketplace only to realize a few months later, like, whatever happened to X, Y, and Z, right? And that's because they didn't focus on the brand and build it. And so they really stood for nothing, and it just became a flash-in-the-pan situation. Um, And even if you are a company that appears to be doing fairly well right now, maybe you're making money or maybe you're even growing, we assure you that if you do not build your brand, you will ultimately become a commodity. When the shininess wears off and you're no longer new, you're going to reach a point where people are going to be like, wait, why am I still attracted to this product, brand, you know, whatever the case might be? If there's nothing behind it, you're going to go away and it can happen slowly, you know, death by a thousand cuts, or it can happen pretty quickly, quite honestly. But no matter what, your business cannot sustain and it certainly cannot grow and really, you know, succeed over time if you don't have the emotional leverage of a strong brand behind it. Yeah. And I want to make two points here. One is if you believe, hey, I only sell this widget which is one of my, you know, favorite things. I don't sell a widget. Like I I I'm not going to don't need a brand to sell a widget. But okay, fine. But how are you selling that widget? Your brand may not be the widget itself. Your brand is how you are selling the widget. How do you make people feel in the context of selling your widget? If you're just a, you know, sales side and you're just, you know, OEMing the you know the products out fine, but there's always almost always some sort of back end that powers whatever you're selling. So don't necessarily think about your product having to be the brand. Good point. You can think about how you're selling the business behind the product as being the brand, and then how you to develop that so people choose you to buy that widget versus all the other places that they can buy that widget. And then for all of you who are still saying, "Yeah, but it's still just a widget." Well, I I can say give me any product and I can boil it down to its basic commodity and say, well, fine, Nike is just a shoe. Tide is just a laundry detergent. I mean Coke is just a soda. Coke is just a beverage. I mean it's it's like caramelized water. I mean, like at the end of the day, I mean Starbucks is just coffee. I mean, so you can boil everything down to its basic commodity, but what people saw in it was something more than that. And the more is, again, the emotional benefit of what it does. So yes, Tide would tell you that it's the best detergent out there. But as if you've heard me say, that only gets you so far. If nine out of 10 people already understand that Tide is the best detergent, and only four out of 10 of those people are buying it, then the other five are going to need something else Mm -hmm. in order for it to actually build. And that's going forward. 
in history, because Tide's a 75-year-old brand, it started from square one where mm-hmm. nobody was buying it, right? Mm-hmm. And so you just continue to inch up, inch up, inch up in order to be able to incrementally grow. So like you said, it doesn't happen necessarily overnight, but you don't get to a 75-year-old laundry detergent as being a legacy brand that makes well over a billion dollars a year by not actually building the brand behind it. Yeah. And I think you said some important stuff there, which to me boils down to discipline. So once you have that brand, it's really about making sure that you preserve it and you protect it and you change Mm -hmm. it as needed over time, which is what Tide has done amazingly well. I mean, I think you still hear the reference to it's the it's the scent I remember from my grandma's house and stuff like that. And so there are very strong connections to it because it is literally still that brand that you smelled in your grandma's house that you now use in your house. And I think what we see happen is people get impatient and they start to second guess and they can't tie brand to a specific, you know, I'm going to make this much more money tomorrow or whatever the case might be. And so it becomes, you know, where the nerves just take over. And then that's when you get into these situations of knee-jerk reactions, bad decisions, that sort of thing, which then lands you in this commodity bucket Mm -hmm. versus that brand like Tide or Coke or any of the others that we've mentioned that have stood the test of time because they've stuck with brand and consistently made the decision to do so however many thousands, hundreds of thousands of times over the years. Yep. We'll move on to our next segment, which is in the trenches. And this is where we give real world examples for those of you that have been listening to us that might be specific to some industries and situations, but definitely have a broader application for any of you listening to digest and put into action. Are you craving a deeper dive immersion into the topics on our podcast? Then you will appreciate our virtual consultancy. Located on the shop page of our website, forthright-people.com, you can now download our digital coaching modules on vigilant leadership, culture building, and social strategy. For the cost of a book, you will get diagnostic tools and exercises to assess your current state and development tools to quickly and intentionally improve your proficiency. These are quick yet effective ways to improve your marketing savvy today. Check it out and let us know other topics you would like us to go deep on. So the first one we have here, those big brands are great, but I don't have that kind of budget. So why waste my time? So, Mm -hmm. Anne, this is all yours. Yes. So um, we've alluded to a few of these points, but let me put a finer point on it. So brand building is a philosophy. It's how you do business. It's not something that is um, reserved just for certain businesses, certain products, as you've heard me try to reiterate over and over, even with the widget example. I I feel like sometimes people think that there's a brand got out there with a wand, like a noise brand that says, (laughs) you get to be a big brand, you get to be a little brand, but it doesn't work that way. It's all about really like consciously developing your brand starting at day one. And with that, you know, you're not going to be spending a billion dollars at day one in order to develop your brand. You're going to start at the barest foundational fundamentals, which is, you know, your brand story. Like we said, your visual, your uh, your verbal toolkits, you know, all of those things that coalesce together to create something that is consistent across all your channels. It creates a, uh, creates um your verbal communications that are allowing you to actually talk about your brand. It creates ways for people to talk about you. 
these are how you start, guys. I mean, it's and then you scale from there as you learn, as you grow, as you add more products, you will continue to build and build and build. As you're learning where you're having pain points with your consumers and something's not quite jiving, you're going to refine. It's an ever kind of growing, ever evolving thing. And that is why it's so important not to just dismiss it as something that other people do. Because honestly, this is the secret sauce that makes products convert into brands that convert into franchises. So get on board with this because this is what's going to help you boost your business. And if this is still hard and you don't know where to start, like reach out to us. This is what we love to do. We love to help people get started, help them infuse the brand back into their business. And if you've been in business for a while, it's okay too. We can you know, get you going where you are at. It's, it's something that can be inserted at that point. So don't be scared. Try it on. See how it feels. Yeah, and I think one thing I hear you say all the time, Anne, is is spend really should be relative to the size of your company. And so mm-hmm. we're not suggesting that you go break the bank. Um, you know, it's actually one of the found foundational principles of our company is that we help you decide what you spend because we believe so passionately that you should always do it in line with the business. And this is where the business and the brand really come together and you do kind of a checks and balances. You know, we'd like to do these hundred things, but we only have $10,000 or whatever the case might be. And so this is really an opportunity to Get to a baseline that you feel comfortable spending because it makes financial sense for the business, but you have to do the work in order to get there, which I think is where we see a lot of of people fall off and then make this cop-out statement of, but I'm not a big brand, so why would I ever spend money on these things? And then just to make a point of what you said about KPIs, like I think people think that there's no KPIs for brand building, which is absolutely not true. There is a KPI. There's always a KPI, and that's key performance indicator or success criteria, or whatever your your any metric is, any metric that allows you to evaluate if it's if it's successful or not. It may not be all the way down the funnel where it's like, hey, I got so many customers today, or I got so many sales today. It may be further in. It may be, hey, I had this many people actually come to my website today. Or, hey, I had this many people react to something today. And those are the brand indicators that are going to lead you down to path of, okay, this is going to build my business. And it'll eventually get there because you're going to see things working. So it's, it's a, it's a, it is a model of a little bit of patience, but also a matter of like double clicking down mm-hmm. into your KPIs to make sure that people um, are actually analyzing or being data-driven by something. It's not a you know, just a theoretical exercise. So I just wanted to make that point. Yeah. And I think too, sometimes it's metrics lining up together to tell a story. And so I think this is where it can get tricky for people too, is they're so used to kind of that one-to-one, like Ann said, like I sold so many units of whatever. This is like, no, let's see, let's really dig in deep and, and say, okay, we got you know, 85 likes on this one post. And then, you know, we got this many visits to our website. And then we started this other conversation over here and we got these reactions. And then you can start to say like, oh, this type of message is working amazingly. And Mm -hmm. so, but you have to do the kind of work to put it together, which is part of the brand. Yep. All right. Number two, how will I know if my brand is taking hold and becoming effective? So you just heard us talk about ROI and 
what that actually looks like and the fact that you can't always identify a KPI that's going to be a hard and fast metric that you can go back to to prove your brand worth. I would say, first of all, don't even try. And even if you do think you can identify one, it's not going to be right. So invest the time to think about what are the softer metrics you're after and how are you going to go after those? So there's things like testimonials from your consumer. If you put out a social you know, post and ask, could you tell us what you love most about us or, or whatever the case might be? Um, and then also there's things like, you know, c- could you have like a Facebook Live and then see how many people attend and, and what kind of questions you get or, or those types of things? I mean, there's tons and tons of different ways to do this, but you're looking overall for better engagement and excitement and then the conversation to keep on going, hopefully after you exit, but certainly while you're still in the proverbial room. Um, You want to gather things like reviews and compare um, whatever that KPI ends up being. You know, I want 100 testimonials this month. I want to see us get to 1,000 likes. I want us to have 1,500 Facebook fans. I mean, whatever those metrics are, that's what you're working toward. And part of this is, you've heard us say it before, testing and learning. Um, And with that goes kind of a before and after. So I think uh, it can be hard sometimes to sell in these brand ideas in your organization or even to get yourself over the hump of doing it. But what we will say is that that progress we're talking about, if you kind of take an assessment of where you are before you really do a hard brand push and then give it time to live, you know, a few months or a couple weeks or whatever out there, and then you go back and you assess based on whatever those metrics you were, you know, had ideas about in your head and see how they're doing, that will indicate how your brand is performing. And like Anne said, how you're elevating consistently, maybe not making these giant jumps that everybody wants, but over time. And this does another thing, which allows you to really streamline your brand communications and focus on the ones that are hardest hitting and most effective, which means they're most authentic to your consumer because you've made that emotional connection. Yeah, I think... To build on that, um, you know, a question we ask a lot of, well, we ask all of our clients is, what does success look like, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it seems like a very simple question, and usually the answer is like, I want to grow my business, I want to <laughs> get more customers. Like, yes, we, that's that's the you know the point of business, right? But if you were to dig deep into um, or, or double click down into this these specific activities, what does success look like through my social? What does success look mm-hmm. like? through this blog post? What does success look like, you know, through a podcast? And you start kind of figuring out and, and, and analyzing it, either, you know, pick your benchmark through a, a competitor, at least initially, just to kind of see how they how well they do um, versus previous, as you said, like have a benchmark and like try to go above that. Or maybe you're kind of developing these as you go, where you then you need to look at your analytics that are further down in order to kind of see, hey, did this move the needle at all? Mm-hmm. So there is a little bit of testing and learning. It is totally fine. But I think the thing to you know, keep in mind here is that when you put it all together, it starts becoming a lot more tangible. Mm-hmm. So these things that feel like, oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to wrap my mind around it. I don't, I'm like, I, I can't like even like, you know, put my arms around the bear per se. It becomes more tangible when you just break it down and you just keep asking, well, if I can't measure this, what can I measure? Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. you kind of start building it up, like you said. And then it becomes that process of, of building confidence, of building data, about building analytics that you can then trust that then do lead to whatever your ultimate goal is of you know 
customer acquisition or of 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 sales or whatever those things are. So just do that work to like put all the dots together. And I think you guys will be, you know, just surprised to see how quickly this stuff starts to become a whole lot more tangible. Yeah. And the last thing I would say there is you don't have to do it all at once. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to Anne's point about figuring it out and deciding what channels work or what should be you know, what message are those types of things. I think that's the other danger is that people think they have to be everywhere all the time and that's never going to serve you. And it will be overwhelming all the yeah. way through versus very pragmatically saying we are starting here, therefore we are spending here, therefore you will see us here and then seeing how that goes. And then I think to the point you made, then it becomes more intuitive almost to say, okay, well, if that worked, then I think next in line is this. Right. And before before you know it, it all is working together the way it's supposed to, but because you've been very conscientious and disciplined and choiceful about the way you're going about it. Right. Versus just saying, hey, my competition's doing that, so I'm just going to go do that. Mm-hmm. Which, you guys, it, it's it's such a, a crapshoot when you do that <laughs> because you don't know for what reason or for how they're doing it or if they're even the right ones to follow in doing that. And if they are doing it well, it's because they've done all this work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. just so you guys know. Yeah. There's no no quick win from the brand perspective. Mm-mm. All right. Next question here. What will happen if I don't invest in my brand? So you've heard us talk about becoming a commodity, about dying a slow death. Um And so I won't repeat that other than the fact that I just repeated that. But the other thing here is to emphasize that if you don't work on it from the very beginning, your problems will only be put off and therefore become bigger. So one of the things that, you know, and Anne talked about how we're asked for tactical things and then we ask the deeper questions and there's no answers. But The other thing that happens is that stuff is out there that is not working, and now you're in a situation where you're gaining traction and you're having to undo a lot of bad stuff. So websites are one of the places that this happens to us, where someone will invest $17,000 with someone and have a website built, and then all of a sudden they'll come to us scratching their heads and saying, this isn't really working for me. I'm not seeing you know, conversion or nobody's coming to the site or people are opting out really quickly or whatever the case might be, I mean, it takes Anne and me five seconds to look at the site and say, well, you didn't build it based on your brand. Yeah. Where's your brand? Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it really is that simple. And and I think like, well, it's really disappointing. And I, I feel bad when that happens, especially when the tickets get higher and higher. But it points back to this very question, which is, this is what will happen if you don't invest in your brand. And, you know, Anne made the point already about being places because your competition is or doing things because your competition is doing it. All of those things are bad behaviors. And the other part about this is, is it's really hard to change course and correct those bad behaviors. You know, whether you have someone with a big ego who's like, we already built this huge site and how would I ever, you know, go about undoing that and and spending the money again to, you know, well, it's doing its job okay, so we're just going to push forward and now we're going to move into social even though we know our website isn't working. And I think it just becomes compounded again and again and again to a point where it's sometimes almost impossible to undo, at least in a meaningful way where you're going to be able to rebuild and repair things that have happened with potential or existing customers and bring them back in a way that you could have done if you just set the right foundation in the first place. 
Yeah, my favorite is when people want us to do Google ads on a website that isn't very brand. Yeah, yeah. Um, That becomes a big problem because, yes, we can get people there. And I'm sure a lot of you guys have signed up with a lot of SEO agencies that get people there. But then once they're there, the experience isn't what they expected or isn't um, facilitating the customer journey and they opt out. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's hard to tell in a lot of cases that people have opted out. It's a little bit um, of an obscure data point, um, Mm -hmm. but it's... this is where one where when you start making changes and you do the things in the right way, you see things start to um, shift mm-hmm. in a way that's positive that you didn't even realize what was missing. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that's, I think, the hardest for me in, in April to try to um, showcase to people and, you know, and, and really help them to see is like, yes, you might be getting like, you know, call it 20 leads off your website. I said, well, how do you know you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to be getting 100? Mm hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. How do you know you're not supposed to be getting a thousand? Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, and then of course people want you to guarantee. It. It's like, well, there's a lot of things that goes into that. But mm-hmm. you know, um, but starting with the quality brand led uh, tactics in the in the in those uh, communication channels and the marketing channels, at least puts you in a position to win. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're already behind the eight ball. You know, hoping that you know nobody notices or hoping things just happen. And you know. It, your business is too important to be sitting around hoping everything turns out okay. Yeah. So it is. I we get it. It's hard to invest. It's it's really hard to put money into those things that are not just like right in front of you that you know it's going to translate tomorrow. But if you continue to operate in the short term way, it's going to eventually be detrimental because um, somebody else is going to do it the right way. And as Kevin O'Leary at in Shark Tank says, "I'll squeeze you like a little cockroach." It's like, <laughs> Yeah. Great reference. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> um, but and I think the other thing too that I I will say that that maybe we haven't said it this way before is that it actually can be very freeing when you do do the foundational work from the very beginning because your mind and your your gut, quite frankly, are put at ease because you get so disciplined and good at making the right decisions that it's almost like the path to the future unfolds faster once you get going. And we've seen brands go to unprecedented heights that they would never would have said in the beginning, I'm going to make it here, right? The goal is usually like a half, if not less, of where they end up. And it's like, oh my gosh, because we actually did that from the beginning, now we are, you know, in this place that we are. Yep, exactly right. But again, it's it's, it's an intangible and that's where it becomes tough. That is. You're right. So... Okay, one of my very favorite, but I'm going to send this one over to Anne. Number four in the trenches. When is spending on brand over? Well, I'm guessing all of our listeners now actually know the answer to this question. (laughs) Well, I would hope so, but... (laughs) Which is never, not if you're doing it right. And it's because of what I said before, that this is an evolution. Um, You're going to start in one place. You're going to continue to evolve. Your brand's going to continue to evolve, especially as the environment changes, as context changes, as, you know, things happen that you didn't expect, like, you know, a COVID virus. I mean, your brand is a flexible thing in the context of that it's going to um, have to, like, form and reform and it's malleable. But it's still firm enough that it provides that foundation and support for what you need in order to do your business. So it's always going to change. It's always going to um, 
it, it's always going. You're always going to spend in order to evolve. That it doesn't have to be like exponentially increase as your brand exponentially increases. You'll get smarter about what's working. You're going to learn where to put your money, where it's going to give you the biggest bang for your buck, literally. So um, you just have to be mindful of how things are going, which means you need to know and be aware of your KPIs. It means you need to be aware of what's going on around you. It means that you need to know what your competition's doing. It needs to know you need to know what your customer wants and how that's changed. So you have to be in touch. Yeah. And I would say, you know, we've talked a lot about big brands. You can point right back here and you can say all those brands that we've been talking about all along, they still spend. And the reason is because they have to still spend. And I think you see them do it. I mean, Anne's other point about, you know, it can become not less, but less compared to what you're making and all of that, you know, less piece of a pie, all of those types of things. I mean, you see things like, you know, we've talked about Coke during this and, you know, this Christmas season, they brought back the polar bear campaign and we were driving down the highway and I was like, oh, I'm so excited to see it. And, and you know, in a year where things were very uncertain, something about that billboard just took me right back to seeing those polar bears skating on their belly over the ice, right? And so I think those are the types of things you learn to leverage. Where can we reuse stuff, pull stuff back out? What does that mean to the consumer versus if they're launching, you know, their new coffee Coke items? Um, What does that look like and how are we going to get that message out in a new and different way that makes this relevant to something that we've never done before? Yeah, and I I go through a lot of this in my book, um, The Super Highway of Relevancy, Getting More People to Choose Your Brand More Often and Definitely. It is available on Amazon, but because we're so ingrained and so passionate about brand, for the first five people who actually reach out to us on our website, I'll give you guys a free copy. Yeah, so and we make it easy, just like the tips we always put out there. Just fill out that form and say, I heard you say it, and we will get those books we'll out those to you. Books to you, yep. So good incentive for listening today. All right. Fifth and final in the trenches. I get why you develop brands for products, but I'm a freelancer. Do I need a brand? Yes, you need a brand. Everyone needs a brand. For those of you that know us, you know that I'm the personal brand advocate. If you have not listened to that episode, please see episode three, what is personal branding and why do I need one? Otherwise, the point here is Those brand questions apply, whether you're a product, a service, or yes, even a person, because you are selling something. Yes, you're selling yourself. I know that doesn't sound right in the way I just said that, but you you are. And so you're putting yourself out there, and people have to know who you are, why you're different from others in your space, and why they should want you. This work is important, even if you just want to go and be a freelancer, because all the things we've talked about in this episode apply. If you don't make yourself stand out, you're going to be a commodity. People aren't going to know what kind of work you do and why they should pick you for the type of work that they need. You know, and this applies not just to general freelance, but celebrities, keynote speakers, other podcasters, authors, you know, all of those different things. It doesn't matter if you're a person, you still need to have a brand. And honestly, I think It sets you up to separate you a bit, too, to almost like protect yourself because then it becomes less personal, which I think is also important, which sounds like an oxymoron because I just 
you know, promoted the idea of personal branding. But it gives you some breathing room to be intentional and in control about who you are and what you want to stand for. And therefore, you have power just as the person reaching out for you to do work. So, you know, Anne and I spent a ton of time developing fourth rate people. But some of the stuff that's come out of that is, you know, one, we only want to work with nice people, but we also want to work with people who are going to appreciate our directness and be direct back. And so there's some of the criteria that gives the control back to us in the situation, even though we're selling a service to a client, this is a really big opportunity for you to create your own reality and where you want to do work versus just who will hire you to do something. Yeah, I think that's all right on. And one just build I would give is the democratization of the box now. So uh-huh. like all of us on screens doing all of our Zoom calls or, you know, whatever Google Meets or whatever um, platform you're using has really changed the way that people are perceiving our personal brand, especially from an appearance standpoint. Um, you know, if you were tall before, you could have an opposing, you know, <laughs> stance on everybody and you stand up in the room and, you know, talk. you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Everybody's the same height. Everybody's that same box size height. So it's really important to really think about, too, in this way the world is changing, how has your brand changed or has it changed and should it change in order to be able to really still differentiate in this space where the boxes rule. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's huge. And, and I would expand that even beyond the, the Zoom call box is, you know, Ann and I, you've heard us say a part of our, our the way in which we work is we hire contractors and freelancers all yep. the time. And in some cases, we have resources readily available. And in other cases, whether due to bandwidth or because, you know, this is a little bit different than what we normally offer. I mean, I'm usually the one to vet those people and I may not even be seeing them. Right. Mm -hmm. So we get on the phone and I don't have time to spend an hour on the phone with eight people that I'm vetting to do work for us. So it's literally like you got 20 minutes. And if you can't convince me why I should choose you versus the other seven people that are coming, you know, either before or after whatever you you do fall by the wayside. I mean, one of the things that I like go to right away is tell me why you do this. Mm-hmm. Or, or tell me what type of work you like to do most. If I don't hear passion or any sort of message that feels different than a like, oh, I've just always loved taking pictures or whatever the case might be, then that person's automatically crossed off within minutes. And that's above and beyond the quality of the work. Yes. You know, so I think that's important to, to state, too, is that a lot of people say, this, I'll just let the work speak for itself, mm-hmm. but the work doesn't speak for itself anymore. No, it really doesn't. Nope. All right. So that was our five in the trenches questions. And as all of you know, our third and final segment is a real world example of a brand who's doing this well or not so well. So I'm going to talk about Peloton. There is no way any of you can argue with me that Peloton has not transformed the workout equipment industry. I mean, think about the treadmill in the dusty basement pushed up into the corner. If people are using it, then it's free of clothing. If not, then it's just hanging over there and it just becomes a fixture in your home. Fast forward to Peloton, and I will never forget the first time I heard about this. I was with a client and he was a workout enthusiast and specifically a cyclist. And he told me that he had just spent $5,000 on a bike. And not only a bike, because I know that cycling bikes can be expensive, a stationary bike for his home. 
And I was like, Luke, you have officially lost your freaking mind. I could not imagine a world in which a stationary bike was going to cost $5,000. And so he starts enthusiastically telling me about how he can compete and he can be in all different parts of the world and all the, you know, the stuff that I was just like, okay, dude, whatever. Because he also has to pay $60 a month. I was just going right to say, to do that. because he, yeah, <laughs> then on top of it, there's a fee associated with getting all the programming and making sure that he can, yes, do all the things that I just said. Um, but, you know, fast forward, I guess that was, oh, geez, almost five years ago. Um, and you just see that Peloton is everywhere. And, and not only is it everywhere, but it's expanded from bike to treadmill to different types of workouts that aren't necessarily what you would imagine when you're on a bike or a treadmill um, and all these different things. And I think case in point, not only did they take an industry that was super stale, also an industry where, I mean, I I can recall like Nordatrack, but how many brands can you really think of and say, oh, yeah, that was a strong brand in that space, right? They're just machines and they are what they are. Now everyone knows that Peloton brand and they took the time to do the foundational work to be really intentional. So I don't know how many of you know, but Peloton, the definition is the main group of riders in a race and that those riders together conserve energy and perform better because of each other. So think about the definition of the word and what that then implies. And the fact that their platform is built on, yes, make your workout equipment sexy or whatever, but you are competing against others with others in certain environments where you're placing yourself and you are doing exactly that. You are finding energy from other people in the midst of doing these activities, whereas to go ride a stationary bike before you really could only do by yourself. Uh, Peloton's actually been called the Netflix of fitness because of all the different options and opportunities and the amount of people that they serve across different industries. And so you have everyone from the mom of young kids who's trying to fit in a workout to the ex-quarterback who can't run anymore, who now needs to ride on a bike, to everybody in between. And they're able to address and cater to those customers because they've taken the time to get to know who's actually going to use their exercise equipment. I will speak very specifically to the fact that, you know, well, first they had a failed campaign, I guess it was 2019, where the the husband bought the wife a treadmill and it caused all this backlash of what does he think she's fat or, you know, whatever needs to be in shape. Um, But I've gotten into this discussion because my sister-in-law bought my brother a Peloton treadmill for Christmas, and I've never seen the guy so excited about anything in his entire life. And I think the point there is that, This is a brand that now makes it okay, well, to gift exercise equipment, but also has lived beyond that challenge and also included so many different types of people. So I asked my brother, you know, kind of what do you love about it? And at first it was the idea that they have a young son. He can't get out as freely and easily to run anymore. But he told me today that his past month of running has been better than the past year of running because of the engagement, the competing against against himself, the competing with others, and just the excitement that he's able to manifest that used to come only from running outside and very specifically in races because he has access to a community beyond where he was. And so, 
you know, we've tried to find the right ways to convince everybody out there that brand is so very effective and influential. I think if you look at the way that Peloton has built the business model through the lens of brand, you can just see so clearly how it is working to their advantage across customers serving the right needs and also against competition, which really cannot keep up. Yeah, so breaking it down in a couple of points, because I think this is a really, really telegraphic example, is, you know, can you imagine what the pitch would have been with, you know, with, with, with what Peloton started with, which is, we have a bike, and we're going to kind of try to create community as a result of the bike. <laughs> I mean, it, it it sounds commodity, even just to yeah. kind of say it. Like, so... It's a sleepy category. Exercise equipment is notoriously hard to differentiate mm-hmm. and sell anyway. You know, and you have, you know, the at home and you have like the gym riders, right? It's how else can you take that, which is basically a bike, which that kind of thing has existed for, you know, decades, and then create a brand where people now associate Peloton with this whole idea of, at home writing in sync with the community in order to pull the power of the community, but to better myself as well. And then from that was able to build so much like tangible mass as we talked about to extend it to treadmills. Mm-hmm. Like how does like, mm-hmm. you know, I know about bikes, but now I know about treadmills, but they like are able to reapply and scale the whole process of treadmills. And now they're going into fitness, mm-hmm. you know. So now something that was just a bike has was moved into the brand, which is Peloton, has now moved into a franchise. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of see how those things have kind of built on each other, and all doing this while they had even outside competition from the likes of like Cycle Bar mm-hmm. and Soul Cycle, which is well, why would I need this in my house if I can just go to like one of these places and do it? Well, one, those classes are you know, whatever time they want to make them, not necessarily the time I want to make them. Sometimes they're full. Sometimes I don't like the classes or the instructors. And, and with Peloton, you can even, you know, sign up for the instructors mm-hmm. that you want, or you could play, replay classes or previous classes. I mean, and it becomes very intimidating to to be around people that are actually right there, where in your home, you can kind of ride and yeah, people could see you on the screen and stuff like that if you want to be on there, but they don't necessarily have to be like, right behind you looking at your butt as you're up in third position on the bike, right? <laughs> so it becomes a little bit of a safer environment. And that's what, you know, that that's what they're actually selling. And so I think it's like, they were just selling a bike. Nobody would buy this thing. Mm-hmm. They, they sold the whole idea of at-home, flexible, community-based exercise that is super motivating for people. That is what they are selling. They're not just selling a bike so mm-hmm. or a treadmill or fitness. I'm like it's 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 so like incredibly important and transformative when people kind of see then the elements of how the brand plays and not to mention the insight behind the name and how the name plays and and all of how they brought all those elements to life underneath this umbrella. It's beautiful and that's what happens when you intentionally build brand. Yes, exactly. And and I would just add one more final thing that occurred to me as you were talking which is you know, they also did it right from a rollout perspective, because like you heard me say, I thought Luke was crazy when he spent five grand on a stationary bike, but he's an early adopter and an enthusiast in the space. And he also loves technology. So he was the perfect target and mix of consumer 
versus now, yes, they've translated it to treadmills, but there's also tiers of the product you can buy. So if you can't stomach $5,000 for, you know, the bike of your dreams, if you're into that sort of thing, you can get a lesser model, which is less of an investment, but also like you don't need all or want all the bells and whistles necessarily, right? So yes, they're expanding categorically or, or pillar wise from stationary bike to treadmill to fitness, but they're also doing it in tiers to, again, incorporate more people more smartly. Um, and so they, they can get as many people as possible without bastardizing the experience in any way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we love Peloton. That's the summary. Mm-hmm. And my brother loves Peloton. So there you go. Um, all right. Well, I think that concludes our episode today. So go and flex your marketing smarts. Still need help in growing your marketing smarts? Contact us through our website, forthright-people.com. Mention you heard about us here and we will give you a free 30-minute consultation. You can also share any topics you want us to cover, which helps us give real-world support to our listeners in real time. And if you learned something impactful, please share with a friend and don't forget to leave a rating and review on your favorite platform. Now, go show off your marketing smarts.